Ever wonder about long distance riding? I mean, the rally kind? Those riders that love to see how long they can stay awake and how many miles they can cover in that time period? Well, on today's episode, we're going to talk to one person to find out what motivates him to do it and how he finds himself riding his motorcycle through New York City's Central Park in the middle of the night. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Take it Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method, and the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tack. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. motorcyclists are very lucky. We have so many disciplines that we can get into as far as motorcycling goes. There's off-road racing, trial riding, trail riding, cruisers, of course adventure motorcyclists, and many more. But the one that may leave you scratching your head in wonder if you're not into it is long-distance riding. I'm talking the time-distance kind. There's an organization called the Iron Butt Association that's all about that. They have a long list of time, distance, and point collection challenges for their members. And they got a lot of members. It says on their website over 60,000. I assume that's worldwide. Now, for instance, one of them that you commonly hear spoke of is called the Saddle Sore 1000. That's riding 1,000 miles in 24 hours or less. 
Now, the next one up from that is called the Bun Burner 1500. That's 1,500 miles in 36 hours or less. The list goes on from there with more challenges. But where is the thrill and the reward in riding for perhaps thousands of miles, stopping only when absolutely necessary, pushing yourself to stay awake, to stay alert, to ride through all kinds of weather, all kinds of traffic, and even at times cross borders to gain more points? Why risk pushing yourself so hard? Well, the best way to answer these questions is to speak to someone that can't seem to get enough of those types of challenges. Bob Lilly lives in Pennsylvania and absolutely loves long-distance riding. So much so that last year, he rode for 11 days straight, both day and night, with very little sleep, to gain his second-place finish in the 2017 Iron Butt Rally. My name is Bob Lilly. I'm from Easton, Pennsylvania, and I currently am a motorcycle salesman for Hermes BMW Triumph in Port Clinton, Pennsylvania. Bob, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having me, Jim. How did you start out with motorcycles? Is this something that, that happened when you were a kid or, or more of an adult thing? No, I was, uh, it's, a, it's a great story, and I had, a, I had a magical childhood because I grew up in a rural area in the hard coal region of Pennsylvania. And, you know, we really didn't have any paved roads and every kid in the neighborhood had a, a mini bike or a dirt bike. And I basically started because my folks moved next door to a guy who was a Rupp mini bike dealer. He sold them right out of his basement. And I mean, I pestered them, probably, probably drove them pretty much to the brink of insanity. And they were forced to basically buy me a mini bike. So that was it. I got the mini bike. It was a red Rupp Hustler. I believe it was a four horsepower Briggs and Stratton, you know, pull start engine, but it had suspension. And, you know, I was off and running. And then up through the years, it was bike after bike after bike and, you know, higher levels of competition and motocross, enduro, hair scramble, and so on and so forth. And, and living in that area, so close to, you know, deep woods and really uh, the strip mines from, from the coal mining industry, just wide open and go ripping around through that soft coal silt. Uh, I became quite the accomplished off-road rider, so that's pretty much how it started. Well, and Rupp is the real deal back then, wasn't it? I mean, like you said, suspension. Yeah, Rupp, Rupp was, I mean, <clears throat> there were many bikes you could get from like, uh, you know, some of the old automotive store way back in the day, like Dean Fitz or I think even like Grant's department stores would sell them. And, you know, they'd be hardtail frames, no suspension, but a Rupp, I mean, it really did have a fantastic suspension and had, you know, the torque converter drive on it. So you basically just twisted the throttle and went, there was no clutch. And I mean, I hammered that thing. I mean, honestly, the guy who sold it to us, the dealer, it was constantly in his shop getting repaired for like broken shock mounts and everything like that. <laughs> my, I think that's why my dad eventually, he bought me a, uh, it was a birthday surprise. My mom and dad got me a Kawasaki, uh, a KX, it was a KX 100 or KX 90. I can't remember anymore. Uh, which was a much, you know, higher end off-road machine for the time. But yeah, the Rupp was solid as a mini bike for sure. Oh yeah, it makes all the difference. I mean, mine was just that. It was the no suspension frame. And uh, so it was so limiting. I mean, you pretty much stayed on hard packed dirt and didn't do anything crazy. And of course, it was powerless. You could crack the throttle and just hold it there. Like You almost had to want to go (laughs) to get the mini bike to actually move. (laughs) Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you know, now that I said Briggs and Stratton, I think the Rupp might have even had a Tecumseh engine because they were, I think they were manufactured in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. 
So what got you into adventure riding? Like fast forward to where you are now, because because you, you're working at a BMW dealer. Is it adventure riding that brought you there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, through the years riding in the dirt, uh, we would we would get up in the morning as kids and just go all day long. We'd pack lunch, we'd go uh, ride into the deep woods. Ended up getting to organized, you know, hair scramble and enduro events, motocross. Kept right on going through my age of 16. I got a motorcycle license to operate a motorcycle on you know public roads. And uh, it just, you know, the road riding became my commute vehicle for school, uh, my commute vehicle for my job. And on top of that, I mean, we were riding to get back and forth to school, but we were riding all weekend, either racing or just ripping around in the woods with buddies, you know, and, and adventure riding. I mean, it, it started for me as really pure off-road riding, but then as I gained the motorcycle license, it became, you know, a big dual sport bike to run a few hundred miles to someplace new to find the dirt roads and the off-road parks to go, you know, play around in there. You mean to say that living in an area that you grew up in, you'd never ridden on the street until you got your license? Uh, well, not <laughs> legally. <laughs> we did. We did. We used to laugh about that because we had all the streets in our neighborhood were pretty much unpaved until you got down to some of the state routes and the county routes. And oftentimes they were a very quick shortcut to get onto like a railroad bed where you could run that out to like a coal hole. But yeah, there were some challenges occasionally. And I was brought home to my dad uh, in the back of a state police vehicle, uh, Pennsylvania State Troopers, probably, you know, you could maybe nine or 10 times between the age of, say, 10 and 14. But the upside was we knew all the police and all the other kids were getting in the same kind of trouble. And it was kind of harmless in the long run. But I mean, we always made a dash for it. And uh, sometimes we made it, sometimes we didn't. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of incidences <laughs> where you brought back. What they do? They put your, your mini bike or your motorcycle right in the, in the trunk and take you home? So, yeah, sometimes. Other times it would just have to stay along, you know, wherever it was. And they'd drag me home and go back and get it with, my, with a pickup truck. But, and what's the deal, uh, though? They're, they're taking you home so that you're going to get in trouble. They didn't charge you with anything. They're, they're taking you home so your mom and dad can deal with you. Totally. Yeah, there was no paperwork. I mean, we knew most of the guys. A lot of my grandfather was a, uh, a justice of the peace, which was a kind of a small town mayor, if you will, in, in the area where I grew up. So, uh, I mean, we knew all the police and it, it, it was harmless stuff, but we there was no way for us to get to the really good riding spots without touching a paved public road when we got a little bit older and needed to branch out some. I and mean, we had to get there somehow and we weren't going to be denied, of course. So, you know, it was probably, it was Pennsylvania Route 61, and we had to cross that in PA Route 443, literally maybe half a mile. But it was a very crowded piece of road at the time, and you were, more often than not, would see a, a local law enforcement officer just sitting there having a coffee or something, and you'd, you know, you'd kind of be stuck. I'm sure you added some gray hairs to your grandfather's head. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Especially I think, being the justice of the peace, I can just imagine him going, oh, no, not again. Yeah, I think he rude the day my folks got me the mini bike, honestly. But, you know, the funny thing was he, he was a good guy and my dad as well. Uh, when I got the, the Rupp Hustler, my dad originally bought a used Rupp Roadster, which was a little bit faster and a little more high end than the Hustler. It actually, I believe, had a headlight on it and instrumentation and everything else. He bought one of those pre-owned so he could go riding with me, you know, just so I'd get my chops up. But I mean, that lasted probably a month and then I was off and running by myself without him. So, but, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, I said this one time to somebody, I had a magical childhood. If you are somebody who loves motorcycles, like I do, 
my childhood could not have been scripted better. I mean, we just rode constantly all summer long. We were gone somewhere and we just really loved it. Your parents must love it when they hear you say that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they do. I mean, and I, I was fortunate, like I said, to grow up in an area where there was ample riding and I, all my friends had dirt bikes and mini bikes. We all grew up together, riding, improving, chasing each other around, getting into competitive motorcycling. And it, it was, I mean, if you're a two wheeled motorcycle enthusiast, I mean, there is no, there was no better way to grow up. So with this love of, of motorcycles, going right back to when you were a little kid, you know, our most influential times probably, especially in particular as you get into high school, what did you end up doing for a living? Uh, well, actually, I was an uh, electrical engineer and worked in the telecommunications and IT industry for probably 25, 30 years. But about four or five years ago, I think it's five years ago now, I had enough. I was in New York City, Metro New York, New Jersey area in IT sales. It was St. Patty's Day. It was uh, just a, a crazy day at, at work. And I basically walked in and said to my, my manager, you know, I've had enough. And I, I left. And I think they were stunned. I think my family was stunned. But I came home and the first thing I did, ironically, was I jumped on my motorcycle and took a ride to my dealer, Hermes, to clear my head. And you know, you're always supposed to be, I think, in this life, exactly where you're at. And I, I went to Hermes that day and I said to Herm, I quit my job. And he said, well, you know, Tom, one of his sales guys is retiring at the end of the year. Why don't you sell bikes? And when he said it, I, I thought, well, you know, the, the income issue and going from a high paying, high powered sales job in the New York area to something that obviously nobody gets rich selling motorcycles. But at that point in my life, I really didn't need the money because I had done well in my previous career and had some money saved. And I thought, you know what, that sounds like a perfect thing for me. And, and Herm agreed. He said, you know, you know, the products, you've been riding a long time. You've been a customer here forever. He goes, you know, give it a shot. So I did. I came on part time. And when uh, my associate Tom Murray retired at the end of that year, I went on full time and I think it's been four years now. And I'll tell you what, talk about a fantastic life and career move because it's just been fantastic for me. So no regrets. I mean, because often, nope. you know, you, you do a big career move like this. You, you do hear this a lot where somebody will decide that, you know, I, I don't like what I'm doing. Maybe they'll go off on a motorcycle trip and they'll they'll have sort of a big change of life. But, but sometimes, a lot of times, I think people end up gravitating back to what you know. Yeah. I mean, I've got two daughters who are through college now. I just wrote the, uh, the tuition check for the last semester of my youngest daughter. So, I mean, I have zero regrets. And I got to tell you, I will do this job until I'm ready to retire for good. And when I retire for good, the plan is to retire somewhere where it's warmer and to be able to ride year round with, uh, you know, I have a, a fantastic companion. She loves to ride as well on the back. She's a pillion. And we just want to see everything we can see on two wheels. And I, I'm kind of going through a really great period with her because she's new to the sport. I've been around the country. I can't even tell you how many times on my motorcycle around North America, overseas, but it's all new to her. And it's like watching a kid open a, a present on Christmas morning. Every time we go out somewhere different on the bike, she's a real nature lover. She loves the outdoors and she has taken to motorcycling like a fish to water. So between the job and having the time, I mean, also, Herm is great. He gives me time to do things like ride an iron butt rally and uh, 
do certification rides. And, you know, it's just a perfect, it's a perfect match for me. I think it was meant to be. And, you know, way back when in the card, somehow I was supposed to end up doing this prior to, you know, getting out of work for good. And, and I'm just happy. So the, the Iron Butt, the Iron Butt Association and your involvement with it, or at least your, your running of different Iron Butts, that comes from, you know, obviously, and we can hear this, a deep love of motorcycles. And I suspect it's that early competition thing that you did. You, you mentioned that you were entering competitions for different motorcycle events. That sort of carries on. Is that how you got into, was that the attraction, I guess, to the Iron Butt thing? Because they have quite uh, difficult tasks set up for people to do if you want to get certain awards for it. Is, is that really the drive that, or the attraction, rather, to the Iron Butt Association for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I had been researching the Iron Butt Association for years, and I was simply in awe at the amount of miles some of these people would cover in an Iron Butt event, you know, particularly the rally. And you know, I kept looking at it and kept thinking, someday I'm going to do this, someday I'm going to do this. And then uh, 9-11, uh, the, the terror attacks on 9-11-2001 happened. And I decided then, I, something clicked in me that day, as I'm sure it did for a lot of people, especially those in, you know, close to the New York, New Jersey metro area that day. I just said, you know, life's too short. You had how many people that day went into work, never came home. And I said, you know, if you're going to do something, you got to do it. So... October of 01, I decided to do an Iron Butt certification ride. I did it on a Suzuki Cavalcade, and I did a, I think it was 1,037 miles, and it took me just about all 24 hours to get it done. But when I did that, I got to tell you, I was hooked. I started planning the next ride, you know, the higher mileage rides, uh, the Bun Burner, the Bun Burner Gold, the Coast to Coast rides, back to back Bun Burner Golds, and it, you, you get hooked. It's almost you become addicted to it. So, you know, the rally was a natural progression for me from the certification rides. I started doing the one and two day rallies, the local rallies on the East Coast, like the Void, the Cape Fear, the Mason Dixon, uh, all run by long distance riders themselves. And, you know, you start when you do your first endurance rally, you almost always finish way down because there's so much more to it then meets the eye and you really got to polish your skills and you got to get into an efficient rhythm for how you do things and you can't break from it or you just add time. But the first several you do, you finish usually way down in the pack and you start thinking, you'll start watching the big dogs who know what they're doing and you learn and you grow. And for me, that meant eventually winning a few of those events and that gets you on the radar for the Iron Butt Association's rally, the IBR. And, you know, you throw your hat in the ring. It's a lottery system. I think they do look for people who've done well in the smaller endurance rallies because they do want to see people who have a shot at, at doing well in the big dance. So I entered back in 2009 after winning a couple of the local rallies and my hat, uh, I got picked out of the hat and that was my first rally in 09. Going back to, you were saying that that first saddle sore, I assume it was the saddle sore 1000. That's what they call that, that uh, 1000. What was the thrill in that? What, what got you all excited when you were done that? You said it almost took you the full 24 hours. So you could say that you almost, you almost didn't get it. You took the maximum amount of time or, or pretty close to it. What was the thrill? I mean, the thrill was, it was just, it, you had a goal. I mean, you had a clear goal. You had a timed goal that you had to meet. And I just I took off for New England. I rode all the way up around uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, came back down through Connecticut. But I was stopping at gas stops. I was getting off the bike. I was stretching. I was getting a candy bar. I'd you know, shoot the breeze with somebody who would ask about the bike. I stopped at a diner and got lunch. I didn't realize 
just how much time I was gobbling up by doing those small tasks. And, you know, it took me towards the end, I realized, geez, I might not make this thing. I was really shocked. And I, it was just the thrill of knowing, you know, I'm going to ride this motorcycle 1,000 miles in 24 hours, which at the time, I have to admit, sounded like something that you'd be out of your mind to want to try. And now I say this, you know, I can rip off a thousand miles in about 16 hours. And, you know, my bike has been adapted. The equipment's been upgraded. I've got everything right where I need it on the bike. I have a fuel cell. I mean, the gas stops are, are much fewer. And it's amazing to see the transition from a greenhorn coming in and doing something like this on basically a stock motorcycle to eventually doing it on a motorcycle that you've adapted purely for long distance endurance competition. I mean, you really, really, really do shave down the amount of time it takes you to cover the kind of miles you need to cover. So it's almost like you have just a goal because you could go out and like even you're saying right now, you could go ride a thousand miles right now in 16 hours and, and maybe it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But as soon as you put a goal in, and the reason I'm sort of leaning to this is, is because I often think that when people do a ride, if you have a, some sort of plan or a goal, it seems to make the ride just that much more exciting. You know, you're planning to do a loop or, or something like that, but there's something just about you actually tracking the fact that you're going to do the thousand miles in the 24 hours. That's the thrill. You didn't need the iron butt association behind you. There, there was nothing really there except your, your concept of what the trip was about. That's correct. And I, I think you're exactly right about that. I mean, even when you're going on a trip, like, for example, uh, you said if, if you have a destination, you know, let's say you're going to Oregon or Washington State to see like Columbia River Gorge or something like that. You get there. When you know you're going someplace like that, it's the excitement level is way different than just taking a ride on a Sunday afternoon. And the endurance stuff, especially the competitive level of it, when you know there are other people chasing the same goal that you are and, and you get the competitive nature of it, it also on top of the ride, it, it's just truly addictive. I don't, if you ask anybody who's done an iron butt rally, they will tell you, uh, you can go from the highest emotional high to the lowest emotional low in a matter of seconds. And that combined with the fact that you, you kind of take comfort in knowing that you know, you're doing something you love while at the same time you're competing against people that also are doing something they love and they're running in sometimes the same types of problems you are and you don't wish, you know, uh, bad for anybody in an iron butt rally. But, you know, I think any competitor would tell you, you know, if you got a flat tire, you're thinking, well, maybe somebody else got a flat tire too and, and I'm going to be okay. So, you know, it's just, you don't want it to happen, but you know, you know, people are running into the same level of nonsense you are and Anything can and will happen in an iron butt rally. Anything, it, it, the sky is the limit. Let's talk about the rally for a second. For those who don't know what the rally is and what it's about, how does it run? What, what's it all about? Well, the iron butt rally is basically, it's an 11-day event. You, it's, it's been called a scavenger hunt on steroids. Basically, you're presented with a list of bonuses. I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 340 to 350 bonus locations in this past rally, the latest one in 2017. And usually there's a theme. Uh, this past year, it was uh, animal, uh, prehistoric, mythical, water or land-based animal sculptures. And you had to go find these things. Basically, each of these bonus locations require you to take a picture of your rally flag in front of it with or without your motorcycle. And they're worth point values. And your goal is to pick your own route. They, they had a starting point and they have an end point, And there's a few checkpoints in between 
You have to get as many bonus points as you can and get to the checkpoints without being time barred and then get to the finish without being time barred. Usually the higher point value bonuses are further off the beaten path and require a much longer and aggressive ride to get those points than something that might be very, you know, very close to the various routes that people take. And some of these things you're looking at to get points for, they can be out of the country as well. They can anywhere in North America. Yeah. I mean, in past rallies, I think there were bonuses in Mexico, obviously Canada. I mean, Alaska this year, in fact, Newfoundland, there were a bunch of bonuses. Uh, Yeah. Pretty much anywhere in North America. It's bizarre because the thought of someone going around and actually tracking this out. I mean, if you're, you're going to take something specific like this sculptures, someone has to go find those. Are they doing internet search or are they actually doing internet search and then riding it as well? Yeah, I mean, it's both. You've got a whole team of scouts that go out and support the rally. The, the rally master this year is a guy named Jeff Earls. He was a former second place finisher in a rally. Uh, he was the rally master, so it was his responsibility to put the bonus list together he hired, you know, uh, he managed rather, I should say, an entire team of riders like the long distance riding community. People are so happy to go out and scout bonuses and get the GPS coordinates locked down, get a picture of it, get a good description of it. It's it's really a big family of people who love long distance riding. And, and there's a whole background of volunteers out there helping to support the administrative staff at the IBA who who actually put the rally on. And in, in this year in particular, it was Jeff Earls was the rally master. So uh, he did a hell of a job. I mean, he put a rally together that the bonuses were far flung. They were interesting to see. And he added some multiplier complexity into it, where if you strung your bonuses in certain orders, you got additional points. It was it was quite the quite the puzzle. The way I see it, as far as a general concept, is that they're setting out these different sculptures in this case, or, or any sort of uh, points where you can gather, or, or places where you can go visit, get a photograph, gather points. They lay them all out there. They tell you, these are all of them. You make your choice which ones you want to go to. And I guess a lot of it is in choosing your route. How are you going to get to from this point to that point and do the least amount? Is it the least amount of mileage or least amount of time? No, well, the mileage, I mean, ironically, it's your routing that's going to dictate your mileage. I mean, if you're going for big points, and I've said this to, to many people about the Iron Butt Rally, the Iron Butt Rally sounds like it's a fun event, but if you're vying for a top spot, I think any of the top 10 people would tell you there's really nothing fun about it. It's, it's nerve-wracking. It's, uh, it's stressful. It's anxiety-producing. I mean, you are going – I think there were 117 people in this year's rally, and you know you could – Throw the rally book out there, and out of say 100, you know, 17 people, you might see 117 different routes. Everybody picks and chooses what they think they can safely get to, and what they can handle, you know, with sleep and and downtime, get those points and get to the checkpoints on time. Uh, like everything, like any competition, you have a group of people, the big dogs, so to speak, who will go after more and more points, and you know, go further, further off the beaten path to get them and push themselves to the to the limit on time management and their their rest capabilities, you know. You say nerve wracking and stressful. I think most people are listening think, well, why would you bother doing something like that? But that's part of the thrill you get in a race, isn't it? Just about any sort of thing. I mean, if, if you competed in anything at all, those are normal feelings. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you really, when you start I tell people you're probably running on pure adrenaline for the first five days, especially after the first checkpoint. You get in there and you see that you've done well, and the adrenaline just kicks up another notch, and you run you run strong. And uh, it really is you are hyped, and you are you are 
completely focused. And I, I like I like to say it's probably there was a movie one time with Patrick. Uh, no, no, Bradley Cooper. I'm sorry. It was this movie where he was taking this illicit, illegal drug that made him sharp and focused, like he could speak different languages. And he, his hearing and his vision became so acute that he didn't miss a trick in the book. It's almost like that when you start this thing. You are so just focused and intense on going for the things you want to get. And the real trick is as you get further on into the event to try and keep that focus and keep that energy level up. I mean, you get into day eight, nine, ten, it's it's hard. I mean, to manage your time and to keep going and do it safely is extremely difficult. It takes a hell of a lot out of you emotionally and uh, physically. Is it dangerous? I mean, you, you mentioned danger there, and I'm just thinking, you know, when you're talking about miles and pushing yourself on a motorcycle, you know, it's something that you, you have to talk about. You no, know, I think, I mean, obviously anything you can do in life has some element of danger. So, yeah, I mean, riding a motorcycle 13,124 miles in 11 days probably has a little higher element of danger, but the rally staff, they incorporate safeguards in there to make sure people are, you know, like mandatory rest bonuses and uh, you have to stay in a certain location for six hours and you have to get rest. And I mean, you push yourself to what you alone are capable of and it's all on you. It's personal responsibility, which is one of the other things I love about the Iron Butt Rally is it's all on you. There's no help. It's you and you alone. And if you screw up or you hurt yourself, you're the one responsible. But the staff and the administration overstress safety and getting back in one piece over, you know, uh, riding dangerously to get points that are on the on the very cusp. But I think human nature being what it is, real competitors will always push themselves to the limit, no matter what it is they're doing. And I, I don't think any of of the people doing these types of events are any different. So yes, it's dangerous at times for sure. But uh, I think the, the, the risk for me is, is certainly worth the satisfaction and the reward I get from doing it. 11 days is a long time to do anything, especially when you're working at your peak. So yeah, to try and keep yourself motivated, 11 days is a long time, especially because we don't do this every day. I mean, we don't, very few people have something in their life that they're actually pushing themselves hard at. So to go out and do this for 11 days, I can imagine that that's, that's a lot of stress and it's a, a certainly a, a different way of living for that period of time. What is your? What have you found is the method for this? Like, like uh, there has to be a method that almost everybody would choose, and I'm sure that, like you said, there's those people who are very serious about it. They're going to go that extra bit on everything, and and maybe get into much more advanced techniques. But sort of, what is the method for driving these long distances and doing it comfortably? I think one of the things you have to do immediately is before the first rally. Now, granted, I've done four. The first rally I did in '09, my prep was ridiculous. It was 18 months of just insanity where I've gotten away from that a little bit because as you become familiar and become a more veteran with these things, you know what you can, you know, kind of chip off of your of your regimen. But basically what it boiled down to for me is you eliminate all of the stimulants, no caffeine, no chocolate. Uh, you know, I like to have a drink every now and then. So I cut alcohol out completely about six months before the rally starts. No caffeine, no chocolate, no alcohol. And when you get within about three months of the rally, I start training myself to sleep less. And the U.S. Navy actually released a declassified study that they did to see how long a pilot could fly an aircraft and retain the cognitive ability to work a complex weapon system. 
And believe it or not, one of the iron butt rally finishers from years ago was a former Surgeon General of the Navy, uh, Admiral Don Arthur. Don gave a presentation on this on this information when it was declassified, and it's amazing how it works. The Navy figured out that you could fly a plane for 24 hours and you could take a nap. You, you could nap from 45 minutes to an hour, but you could not sleep more than an hour because if you allowed your body to get into a deep REM sleep, it was too hard to get up, shake off the groggy condition you would be in and, and start out again. It's unbelievable how well it works if you force yourself up after 50 minutes. First of all, you're going to be so tired, you're going to fall asleep near immediately. Set your alarms. You get up 50 minutes later. You pop up within 30 seconds, 30 seconds to a minute. You feel fresh as a daisy. And I was very skeptical until I tried it myself, but it works. So I practiced that routine along with, you know, uh, really crazy time management. You know, pulling into a gas station on the motorcycle not shutting it off, filling it with fuel. Uh, I can get in and out of a gas station and put 11 and a half gallons of, of fuel in my bike in about four minutes. And sometimes that even includes running in and filling my hydration bladder or maybe going to the bathroom. But for me, the key is the bike doesn't stop for anything but fuel. I don't stop to go to the bathroom. I don't stop for food. I stop for fuel and I make sure I fill my hydration bladder and my tank bag with snacks or if I go to the bathroom, I do it then. And unfortunately, I mean, if, if I leave the gas station after filling for fuel and had to, you know, urinate or, or go to the bathroom at all, and I didn't do it, unfortunately for my body, I'm holding it for 350 or 400 miles till I need fuel again because I minimize wow. my downtime, like unbelievably. Why leave your bike run when you're fueling it? Because believe it or not, it, it takes time to go through that start cycle. And you're fueling it so rapidly, it almost doesn't matter. And on some bikes, of course, you have to shut the bike off and open a gas cap with a key. What I did was I took my spare key, I put the cap in the unlock position, and I would either cut the key off in there and leave it, or I uh, took the factory fill cap off and just put like a screw-type cap on it or an aircraft plug. Uh, because when you think about it, Jim, over 11 days – Every time you waste, say, 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes or three minutes, over 11 days, that adds up to hundreds of miles that you could have ridden but didn't. Uh, so and that could put you behind somebody because, you know, you think of how many times you stop for fuel, add a minute or two to each one of those, and you could find yourself behind somebody just from that. Exactly that. And I learned that in the first couple of rallies I did. You know, I'd pull into the bonus get off the bike, stretch, take my helmet off, take a picture, shoot the shit with a couple of guys who pulled in. And then you'd see a pro pull in who's been doing it for years, like a Jeff Earls uh, or a Jim Owen. They'd pull in. They wouldn't even shut the bike off. They'd hang their flag on a magnetic clip out in front of them, take the picture from the saddle of the bike with the flag hanging on this magnetic pole and have the rally book in their tank bag, open it up, write in the information, put the flag and camera back in the tank bag and be gone in like 40 seconds. And I realized that's what it takes to do well in the Iron Butt Rally. You have to keep the motorcycle moving and you have to minimize your time when it's not to, down to a science. Otherwise, you'll never break the top 10. What's the flag for? The flag is the identifier. You get a rally flag in every event. And they want to see that flag, a picture of it with a time and date stamp in front of whatever bonus it is that you're seeking. You know, it might be, uh, you know, for example, up in Newfoundland, Newfoundland this year, there was a, 
a selection of bonuses. One was a giant squid on uh, in Robert's arm, I believe it was, and you had to just take a picture of it. So the easiest way to show that you've been there is you take the picture with the time and date stamp and you, you uh, correlate that to your odometer. You write it on a book. When they get back to Rally Central, they take all your information and run it through a software program to make sure that you, in fact, were where you said you were. This is really high tech. So so just getting back, you're not going to be able to tell where you're at until the computer is done crunching all the numbers. That's correct. And in, uh, in every competitive event, I probably since the dawn of time, you'll always get a couple of people that try to game the system. And the Iron Butt Rally has some really infamous stories of guys that had done that and gotten caught. Stupid things like the bonus was, you know, ride to the Sands Casino in Las Vegas and get a, you know, a $20 gaming chip. One year, there was a guy in the rally who, instead of riding all the way to Vegas, decided to buy a gaming chip off somebody who was coming from Las Vegas. I, I forget how he did it, but I think he actually held up a sign looking for a gaming chip from something, and he actually bought one and didn't do the miles, but got caught. So the key is it's become very high tech over the years with spot tracking devices. That's the other way, too. We have to have a spot track for the entire rally so they can see your route everywhere you are, whether you're moving or whether you're not. And if you don't keep the spot pinging, you lose points. So between that and the software they use to look at your odometer mileages and where you stop for fuel and the bonuses you collected, they can basically figure out down to a few tenths of a mile whether or not you've, you've done what you're supposed to do. We're going to take just a quick break here and uh, thank a couple of sponsors that helped make this episode possible for you today. Um, stick around, though, because when we come back, Bob is going to tell us a story about being in a place that very few people want to be in the middle of the night. Central Park between daytime and nighttime takes on a whole different look and feel. When you're riding in the dirt... In particular, the technical stuff. Standing is going to give you better control of your bike. And training yourself to stand in those tough sections is part of advancing your riding skills. But when you stand, your foot pegs are your connection to the bike. Now, great quality pegs don't happen by accident. They're not just whipped out. It's not as simple as that. They're researched, engineered, and tested through the toughest of conditions. And IMS Products has foot pegs that will increase your connection and control of your motorcycle. I'm speaking from experience with this. And because there's so many varied preferences that we all have in size and style of the foot pegs, IMS has a full line of foot pegs for our adventure motorcycles built to match your motorcycle. 17-4 stainless steel, made in the USA, and, and with a very impressive lifetime warranty. So drop by their website, have a look at what they've got. They've got a peg to fit your bike, I'm sure. www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you go there, make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, Overland Expo West is gearing up again, this uh, time again in Arizona, May 18th to 20th this year, 2018. They say that last year they had record numbers. As a matter of fact, it was 40% bigger last year than the year before. And this year they're expecting it to even grow to more than that. They're expecting over 14,000 people to attend. Wow, that, that's a, the really big numbers. Now, if you haven't been to an Overland Expo, it's a must attend for 2018. I'm telling you, put it on your list. There's all kinds 
kinds of motorcycle overlanding things happening there, including their all-new motorcycle expedition skills area. Um, let me just crunch some numbers here with you. Get this. They're going to have over 350 exhibitors, authors, videographers, VIP travelers, and feature vehicles. Somewhere around 190 classes, 480 session hours of programming, 170 presenters, and they're going to have over 100 staff and volunteers. So it sort of gives you an idea of the size of it. People come from around the world to attend this event. So there's so much to see and do here. Drop by their website, get yourself signed up. You want to sign up early to make sure that you get in. www.overlandexpo.com. And of course, when you're doing it, when you sign up, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. But definitely get to Overland Expo West this year. Now back to Bob Lilly. That means you're riding 24 hours a day. So you mean you're, you're arriving to some of these sites in the dark. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the bikes become adapted to the level of competitor that you want to be. And my motorcycle has lots of auxiliary lighting on it because I want to light the road up at night in a desolate, you know, unknown destination or road like it's daytime. And that's exactly what I do. So yeah, you ride a lot at night. You get to see some beautiful things while you're riding in the daytime, but that is the one downside to the Iron Butt Rally is you traverse some really beautiful country in the middle of the night and you don't really see anything. The night also makes it dangerous because you're, we've got the animal thing and a lot of people just won't ride at night for that. And those of us who do ride at night, like you, have a lot of lighting uh, to try and see animals. But, but you found that in Newfoundland, didn't you? Yeah, Newfoundland, when we... I rode from Dallas, Texas, through Manhattan, up to Nova Scotia to get to the Marine Atlantic Ferry Terminal up there to take the boat over to Newfoundland. And when we were sitting at the terminal to get onto the boat, five, five competitors from the rally made it up there to do this. The ferry workers noticing us on motorcycles went out of their way to come over and tell us, you know, you're going to Newfoundland. If you're going to ride at night, you got to watch the moose. And I think I must have heard it 50 times. And then when we were getting off the ferry, uh, we got off the ferry, I believe, in the morning. We had full daylight, but still, they were, they were warning us, if you're riding at night, watch the moose, watch the moose, watch the moose. So I thought to myself, there must be something to this moose thing. And sure as hell, that night when it got dark, I was on my way back from St. John's, heading back towards the ferry terminal. I think we rode about 1,220 miles in a little over 21 hours or so on Newfoundland itself to get all the way out to St. John's, get all the bonuses in between and get back to the terminal at Port of Basque. But I saw five moose. And honestly, I've seen moose in Canada, you know, New Hampshire, the, the northeastern United States, the, the western uh, Canadian areas. And they're really big animals, obviously, if you've never seen one. I mean, I can't tell you how big they look. But people told me the moose in Newfoundland are bigger. And I thought that was probably just, you know, braggadocio nonsense until I actually got to look at these animals up close. I had seen the first four I, I had seen were well off the road, you know, looked huge. I saw, I think I saw two bulls and a, and a couple of cows and one smaller one. But in the middle of the night, I had stopped to go to the bathroom. I just pulled over on the side of the road and, and took a leak and I got back on the bike. And as I was pulling back out and going up through the gears. I think I was, you know, second, third gear. And at first I absolutely thought I was hallucinating because, you know, I'd, I'd been tired. I've been riding all night 
And I heard this clippity-clap sound, similar to what you would hear if you were taking a carriage ride in downtown Manhattan. And I looked over, and there was this cow, moose, pretty much just galloping next to me right on the shoulder of the road. And I was sitting on you know, an R1200 GS Adventure, which is a pretty tall bike to begin with, and I'm 6'1", and I got a Russell saddle on the bike to push me up even a little higher. She was maybe 15 feet off to my right, and I was looking up at her. I could not believe the size of this animal. And I thought, man, if you hit one of these on the road at night broadside, I don't think you have a chance of, of walking away from something like that. I saw her, I backed off, I slowed down, I, I edged over into the other lane a little bit, and I, I tooted the horn a couple of times. And she gracefully just jumped over a guardrail and ran down out into a field. And I'll tell you what, it was a magnificent sight to see because the moon had been out and it was just I remember thinking, how cool is that? But so grateful that that was the closest encounter I had had. We did have a couple of people, not hit moose, but we had a couple of people had deer strikes uh, or animal strikes. I think it was deer in the event that happened. It happens every event. It's just one of those things that's that's part of it. Yeah, like I said, a lot of people don't want to ride at night just for that reason. And it's probably good advice. And, you know, unless you really have a, a desire, strong desire for it or a need to ride at night, we're extremely vulnerable when it comes to animals and even a small animal. Boy, you, you get a raccoon right out in front of you and that can certainly cause problems for you as well. But the moose are huge. And then that moose that you went by very likely was on the side of the road and it spooked as soon as you went by it and started to run. That's why it's running. It's thinking that you're sort of chasing it somehow. And, and it's just bizarre to think that, that something that big could be on the side of the road and not have you see it. But they are difficult to spot. And if you don't spot the the tapetum in their eyes, which reflects your, your light, you know, so you can actually see the eye light up. If you don't spot that if the head is down or the butt is towards you or something like that they blend yeah they're so impossible to see because their their hides are so dark and in the middle of the night i mean they, they absolutely blend into the dark horizon as you go down the road now that's not the only thing you deal at night because you end up having to go places that are maybe somewhat uh, unsavory at least at nighttime you had an incident where you had to get a, a photo of a particular statue in uh, i think it was new york city wasn't it yeah, correct. It was uh, in Central Park. And, and before I tell you about that, you hit on something there that I, when you're riding at night for those kinds of long periods of time and you're going to places that you're unfamiliar with. And, you know, I can't explain it other than for me personally, you get anxious. You have a leveling of anxiety that, at least for me, comes over you when you, you've been riding for, you know, seven or eight hours in, in the dark in unfamiliar territory, perhaps in really awful weather. It's unbelievable how down you can get and how things that normally otherwise wouldn't even give you anything to think about can get under your skin and just, just rack your nerves. So it's, it's weird how the sun, when it does finally come up, even if you just see pink on the horizon, it's like getting an adrenaline shot right in the neck. I, I can't tell you how it lifts you, but uh, to get back to, the, to going to unsavory places in the middle of the night, one of the bonuses happened to be a statue of Alice in Wonderland that was in the middle of Central Park. Now, Central Park in New York, if, if you're a New Yorker, you'll know what I mean. If you're not and you've never been to New York City, Central Park between daytime and nighttime takes on a whole different look and feel. In daytime, it seems relatively safe, although there are sections where I probably you know, would say it's not as safe as it should be in broad daylight, but still. Uh, relatively safe. And you go there at nighttime and it is a completely different animal. And in this particular case, I got there in the middle of the morning, it was pitch black yet. And I had to take a picture of this statue 
And there were, uh, I'll say, there, there was a lot of unsavory types hanging out, vagrants, you know, people that looked like they were involved in one illicit activity or another. And obviously, you know, I don't know that for sure. And they could have been completely fine people. It just didn't look that way. And you get a gut feel for things. Your gut is the one thing you should trust no matter what. And my gut told me this wasn't a good place to be at this time of night. But uh, I went down there and I rode up on the motorcycle. I rode it right up on the sidewalk. And I had to walk maybe about 200 yards down a path to get to the statue. And there were quite a few uh, people around and the motorcycle itself. I mean, with all the blinking gear on it, the GPS is the radar detector. I myself was wearing a spot tracker on my left arm. I had a blinking Bluetooth system on my helmet, but the bike looked like it rolled right out of star Wars. And I, I got off the motorcycle and I basically looked at some of these people who were staring at the bike, like it was candy. I don't know if I was out of my mind or I wasn't thinking properly, but I basically got off the bike and I proclaimed to every one of them that I was a New York city police officer. This was New York city property. And if anybody laid a hand on this motorcycle, they'd find their ass straight in the pokey. As the words were coming out of my mouth, Jim, I almost couldn't believe I was saying it because I think I'm going to get shot or knifed. And then on, as soon as I said it, these, the people just kind of looked at me like, this guy means business. And I saw some more weird things going on down by the statue as I wandered through the path to get to it. The fever pitch of competition, I didn't want to have to take everything off it and lock it away because I was trying to get up to uh, Nova Scotia, to the ferry terminal. And... I mean, I think I made it with 20 minutes to spare. So you can see in the end how I could not take the time anywhere to do something that didn't really need to be done. And when you were on your way back from the statue, going back towards the motorcycle, you remembered at that point you'd left your, your uh, phone on the bike. Yes. And I almost had a heart attack because I realized, oh, my God, if you lost your phone in an event like the Iron Butt Rally, it's almost like a lifeline. It's, it's the lifeblood. I mean, you need it. You got to have it. So that would have meant going to another, you know, a, a cell carrier store and, and buying a new phone and going through all that nonsense. And that would have just killed me. But I left it on the bike. I realized that maybe about 150 yards from the bike and I could see people, you know, walking around up there. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get back there and the phone's going to be gone. And I sprinted. Now, I've been on the road. Now, this was the last leg of the rally. And, you know, you're kind of you're kind of tired. And you're wearing all the gear and it was hot and muggy and I bolted for the bike. And by the time I got there, I think my heart rate must have been about 200 beats per minute. And I, I rounded the corner and got around a hedge and I, I looked straight at the bike. And the tank bag initially obscured the cell phone mount. And I, at first glance, my heart sank because I thought it was gone. And I, I ran another five or six feet and got around the tank bag and I saw the phone and nobody touched the thing. And I got to tell you, it was like winning the lottery, man. I, I, just, I felt so good that nothing had gone wrong there. I could not wait to get the hell out of there. I went downtown, picked up three more bonuses. I had to wait for daylight, which was nerve wracking as well. You know, that's funny too. You're looking at the clock. I'm looking at the GPS. It says I'm going to be in North Sydney, Nova Scotia for the ferry at, you know, whatever the time was. And I'm watching this thing and you're waiting for daylight because you couldn't take the next bonus pictures unless it was daylight. They were daylight only. You mean they tell you that you, you can't take a photo in the dark of that particular one? That's correct. The bonuses, some are daylight only, some are time restricted, like between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. And daylight defined by the Iron Butt Association is there has to be enough daylight in the background of the photo for you to pick up things beyond the bonus itself. So like there has to be enough skylight for you to see things in the distance, perhaps trees or you know perhaps some lawn or something like that. It usually coincides with about 
about what they call U.S. twilight time for the different time zones. So once twilight time gets there, the sun is high enough, just about ready to break the horizon where you have enough light where you can do things like that. But when you're sitting and you are waiting and you know you have whatever the mileage was to get to Nova Scotia from Manhattan and you had to be there and you're looking at your time window and you got to wait for this daylight, you want to talk about nerve wracking and stress producing. It's like you just want to tear your hair out. What do you learn from all this, Bob? Well, I think I learned that my family says I'm insane, but I say, well, there's a lot of insane people out there with me. I mean, I learned that I have an absolute ability to discipline myself beyond what I thought was possible in the past. Uh, you become a very patient person when you're doing an iron butt rally. You also become, uh, I mean, I think... The honest truth is I think you almost have to be a type A personality to get into this in the first place. But even uh, I think I could be described as type A. But when you're in the middle of something like that, even at the fever pitch, you usually run. You find a way to operate within that that level of, of performance at a lack of better way of putting it like at a more calm rate. You're still pretty high strung, but you're making good decisions and you're, you're managing your time in a fantastic fashion. So is, you don't make mistakes. I think. I always knew I was a competitive person by nature. I mean, my whole life I've been that way. I can't say it's taught me anything about myself. I think that probably I didn't already know, but it has taught me a lot about the competitive human spirit and what what people will go through to meet a goal. You got second place out of 106 people starting. You covered 13,124 miles. You went 28 states, um, five Canadian provinces, all in 11 days. Are you going back or have you had your fix? You know, this has been an ongoing discussion in my family. They're all dead set against me doing it again, particularly my companion. And I haven't ruled it out. I haven't ruled it in. You know, and and the argument is, well, you could get in it and you could not finish. Or you could get in it and you could crash. You could get in it and finish second again. And and I'm like, that's true. But you don't know that unless you get in it. So I might do it again. I can't say... And the truth is, at the finish of the last one, I'd have told you there's no damn way I'm doing another one. (laughs) So I don't know. I'm going to give it some thought in the coming weeks and see. I think uh, I love it. I love the sport. I love riding, obviously. And it's a great way to to combine your love of riding with with your love of nature and a competitive, uh, you know, competitive nature you have to. And I mean, no better way to see the country. I, I say there's you can see more in 11 days, even riding in night half the time. I and mean, you'll see more of the country in 11 days that most people probably see in, in several years. It's amazing. I guess the answer is, I don't know if I'm going to do one again. I, I'm going to think about it for another few weeks and go from there. I hope that answered some questions if you had them for long distance riding. I was speaking with Bob Lilly from his home in Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to find out more about the Iron Butt Association, we have a link to that in our show notes.
I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and MotoBreeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and to you the listener thank you very much. Well, you remember, you can drop by our website. Well, you can. You can drop by our website anytime, www.adventureriderradio.com. we get got a bunch of things going on there. But if you like what we're doing and you want to help out, this show is built on a model of some advertising and listener support to make it work. And uh, if, by clicking on the support button, you can see all the options there. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on the show. Now, remember, we also have our other show, ARR Raw, that comes out once a month. As a matter of fact, there's an episode coming out in just days from now. So if you're listening to this, you want to drop by the website as well and click on the Raw button. Both Adventure Rider Radio and Adventure Rider Radio Raw are available anywhere you find podcasts. Well, that's about it. Thanks very much for listening. My name is Jim Martin. See you next week. Brent, I'm Brent Carroll, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>